Today we're going to have a, a really in-depth Bible study based on the, the record there in John 3 about Nicodemus. And I want to suggest that actually there's a whole section of text here that, uh, that sort of forms a, forms a unit, as it were. Uh, chapter 2 of John, verse 23, we're told that many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And then we're told that Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Then chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So I suggest that there's a flow of thought there that he knew men, these men who said that they believed in him when they saw the miracles. And then there was a man, one of those people, called Nicodemus. Because actually there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He could just, uh, the record could have just said, there was a Pharisee called Nicodemus. The repetition of the idea of the man, I think, is to show us that out of that class of people, that group of men, if you like, who believed in Jesus when they saw the miracles that he did, there was one of them who, who was typical. One of those men who was called Nicodemus. And then Jesus goes on, as, as we just read, and says that, well, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, uh, born of water and of the Spirit, and only in that way can you enter the kingdom. And then he, he goes on, uh, expounding that theme, until you come to chapter 3, verse 22, where it says, after these things, Jesus came and his disciples into Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And I think that's the end of, of the section. It's sort of linking back to what he's earlier said, that his true followers will be born of water and of the Spirit. That is a reference, I think, to water baptism and a spiritual rebirth afterwards. So then, this is the, the section, and I, I suggest that there's, there's a flow of thought through these uh, 25 verses or so that we, we need to, to pick up. So then, there were people who believed in Jesus amongst the Jews. They said they did because they were impressed by the miracles. But those very same Jews who believed in between the uh, inverted commas in Jesus went away from him and, and later cried out for his crucifixion. And so that's why I think Jesus appears to answer Nicodemus somewhat rudely. Nicodemus comes to him very respectfully and don't forget he was the teacher of Israel, that's what Jesus describes him as, um, and, you know, this man comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. And he says, you must have come from God, because no man can do these miracles that you do, except God is with him. And Jesus answers him, uh, apparently, at first, uh, first blush, out of context. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What relevance has that got to a man coming to him by night and saying, Rabbi, I believe, we believe, that, that the miracles you do show that you're from God. And, and Jesus replies and says, look, unless a man is born again, he can't enter the kingdom. I think what Jesus is saying is, it's not enough to just say, I believe in Jesus. I reckon that he did miracles, and yes, I don't doubt these miracles happened. Jesus is saying, that's not enough. And indeed it isn't, because I think if you ask a lot of people in this world, what do you think of Jesus, they will say something like, well, I believe that he existed. I believe that he was, you know, a good, good bloke, a good guy. Um, yeah, and I think he did, uh, did do some pretty cool things. But that's as far as it goes. And that is, I'm afraid, where a lot of secular people today are up to. And that is not enough. That, that's the, the whole theme that comes out of here, is that to just say nominally, yeah, I, I kind of believe in, in Jesus. Jesus is saying, that's not the point. And of course, the historical record in John shows this to us, that it's not enough to just say, yes, I believe in Jesus. We've got to actually put more meaning into those words. And so Jesus says, unless you're born again, unless a man be born again, continuing this idea of men, the group of, of men who believed in his name when they saw the miracles and Jesus said that he knew what was in man. Uh, he didn't need that kind of testimony. And um, he says that a man has got to be born again. 
And I think this is a, a real challenge to us that we can't just nominally believe. And maybe for our generation, that is the that is one of the the most difficult challenges which there is: nominal belief. Particularly when here in Europe, for example, we are from theoretically a Christian background. The nominal belief in, in Jesus in Christianity is not that difficult to, to profess. And the whole point is, that's not enough. We've got to have this total rebirth. And Nicodemus says to him in verse 4, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, I don't think that Nicodemus was just being stupid, like, well, how can you be born again, in that sense. I think he's, it's a deeper comment than that. Uh, he was, of course, the teacher of, of Israel. He, he did know uh, his theology to, to some extent. So when he says, well, how, how can a person be totally born again? I think what he's saying is, well, yes, but... Surely how we're, we're born to some extent is how we are. The die is cast. Genetically, as people would say these days, in terms of our background, in terms of where we grew up, how we were raised, etc. But to some extent, the cards are dealt almost at birth, or certainly within the first, let's say, ten years or the most of human life, when we have no power really over anything much, the cards are, are dealt, the die is cast. That's how it seems. And I think he's saying, well, yes, but somebody can't totally, as it were, get inside his mother's womb and be born again. And Jesus is saying, oh, yes, they can. And that's what faith in me is all about. So many times we, we come across this feeling, don't we, that this is how it was, this is the situation I was born into, this is how I am, I can't fundamentally change. People say this about alcoholism. In trying to help people in this part of the world, in Eastern Europe, to, to quit alcohol, I hear this so many times. Well, you know, my father was alcoholic, my grandfather was alcoholic. Sort of, well, it's kind of genetic. It's how it was. And to say to them, yes, well, whatever, but there is the higher power. There is the rebirth, and you can become a new person. We've seen it recently in our preaching of the gospel here, a woman who was a lesbian, who changed. And we had the great pleasure of baptizing her boyfriend a few, uh, a few days ago, in fact. And change is possible. And, of course, it becomes a very personal thing when it comes to you and I examining ourselves. And we start to think, well, can I really change? Can I break this habit, this way of thinking, this way of being? That's how I was socialized. It's how I am. And the, the idea of a new birth, that yes, Nicodemus, you can be born again, is, is absolutely amazing. You remember Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if any man is in Christ, and I think he's referring there to baptism into Christ, because that's how we get into Christ, by baptism into him, becoming brothers and sisters in Christ, not just of Christ. Uh, he says, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. And there's a wonderful theme in Paul's writings of the new creation. But that energy that was unleashed at the physical creation when God said, and it, it all happened, it all just came about, that that actually is unleashed in your life and in mine, in our minds, in our hearts, in our worldviews. When we really do engage with a serious belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Jesus says to him again, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen I, amen, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of, of God. So he says in verse 3, Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And in verse 5 he says, Unless you're born of water and Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. So seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom are, are in some sense parallel. And I'm sure he had Moses in mind, as so often in his recorded words in John, he has Moses in mind in, in some sort of way. You remember, the difference with Moses was that he saw the kingdom, he saw the promised land, but he could not enter. 
And yet here Jesus is saying that if we're born again, we both see the kingdom from afar, as it were, and we enter it. Now, this is a, a common New Testament sort of, not paradox, but theme of now, but not yet. That in one sense, we have in prospect entered God's realm of rulership, the kingdom. And yet in another sense, of course, we haven't. We are still mortal. We're still here. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus and the, the resurrection from the dead, the change of nature and the, establish, the establishment of God's sort of physical kingdom, as it were, in literal terms here upon the earth. So then, if we truly have believed, we will have that sense that in a sense I have arrived. In a sense I have entered. You, you Remember in the synoptics, in the, in the other Gospels, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom, that um, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And he's talking about our attitudes in this life. So in a sense, we can in this life enter God's kingdom. Now, I mean, this is such a challenge to us. We think, well, who am I? Just a, a guy living a normal life in the secular world that I could actually already have in a sense entered God's kingdom. No, it doesn't sort of feel like that so often in our lives. But the fact it sadly doesn't feel like that, and we feel more like Moses that we're, we're seeing the kingdom from, from a great distance, this doesn't mean that it can't be like that. What I'm trying to say to you is that there is a huge spiritual potential for each and every one of us that we can know, as Paul terms it, all joy and peace through believing, in that we really can be that assured that by God's grace I will be in the kingdom, and so in prospect I am actually in prospect, in a, in a small way of course, there. Uh, even though you know we lay down to rest and sleep when we fall asleep in Christ and we look forward to the resurrection, but in prospect we are there, and we should adopt the, the perspective of God who speaks about those things that are not, as though they are, because they are so certain of their fulfillment. Now, how else, when you think about it, could we have all joy and peace through believing in this life? Because if we have a, a possibility of living forever in God's kingdom when Jesus comes back, but we don't know, well, there's no joy and peace. There's a terrible nail-biting waiting of uh, however long it is we have to cough and hack our way through this life and until we die or until Jesus comes and then we, we, we hope it's somehow going to be okay well that isn't that isn't the good news of God's kingdom it's not a, 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 a possibility the good news of, the, of God's kingdom is that we will be there so just notice that parallel there between seeing God's kingdom and entering it and of course, we, we want to be in that position. And Jesus says, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, I know all this is open to many different interpretations, but I suggest that being born of water is a reference to water baptism. It's something that we have to do as a conscious act. And of course, that's not enough. There must be being born of the Spirit. And these words are definitely picked up by, by Peter in First of Peter 1, 23, where he talks about being, being born again. And he says, We are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So then, how does this process happen? The dynamic in it is God's word. And again, that's an amazing idea, that through reading black print on white paper, or hearing it preached to us, because not everyone is literate, and suddenly, over the centuries, most believers were, were not literate people. But all the same, the amazing thing is that God's word has the power to radically transform human life to such an extent that we find this rebirth experience. So, remember the context, these people had been impressed by some miracles and said, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, we believe in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I think, it's not enough. You've got to be born of water. You've got to not just drift along in your relationship with God, but you've got to be baptized. And even baptism is not enough, like, well, I've done it, so I'm okay. No, there is this process of spiritual rebirth that comes after that. 
And that is what enables you to see the kingdom, to perceive it, to understand it, and to enter it in prospect. And he, he goes on, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he, he's, I think, drawing the contrast for Nicodemus between the world of unbelief and nominal belief and those who have truly, truly been reborn. And so he says, marvel not that I said unto you, ye must be born again. Uh, in the AV, marvel not that I said unto thee, that is you singular, that is Nicodemus, ye, you plural, must be born again. So that's why I'm suggesting that Nicodemus is really a representative of that whole group of people, of men as they're called here, who, who had believed in between the inverted commas um, because they were impressed by the miracles but had not really believed in the sense that the Lord Jesus wanted them to. And so he says to Nicodemus, don't be amazed at this. Marvel not that I say unto you, Nicodemus, you, plural, your group, born of the flesh as it were, must be born of the spirit, must be born again. And he says, the wind blows where it listeth, or where it wants, and thou, that is Nicodemus in the singular, you Nicodemus in the singular, you hear the sound, or Greek, the voice of it, of the wind or the spirit blowing, but you can't tell where it's coming from, nor where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. And I think what he means is that the voice the sound of the spirit blowing, which Nicodemus was hearing, was the sound or the voice of the witness that is made to the new life, to the reborn life, by Jesus and by all those that have been reborn. And I suggest that because in verse 11, Jesus says to him, We speak that we do know and testify what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. So the witness that's made by the born-again community is the, the voice that comes from the blowing of the Spirit that Nicodemus heard, but he kind of couldn't quite get a handle on the whole thing. And you notice in verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say unto thee, unto you, singular Nicodemus, we, plural, <coughs> speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen. Again, he's pointing this contrast between the group that are born of the flesh and the group that are born of, of the spirit. And Nicodemus is still in that group that's, that's born of, of the flesh. And <clears throat> Jesus goes on. Uh, well, well, he says that um, we, we, our group, testify what we have seen. And he's just said in verse 3 that those who are born again see the kingdom of God. They see the kingdom. And Jesus says, we testify what we have seen. So those who are truly born again will testify of their experience. And that is a voice. The sound, the AV says, that is the voice that Nicodemus hears but can't really tell where the spirit is coming from or where it's going to. So then, if we have this hope of the kingdom, to the extent that we not only see the kingdom, but know that we have, in a sense, entered it, if we have that experience, we will testify of it. And it's a voice that the unbelieving world hears. It's not that we have to psych ourselves up, lots of committee meetings, lots of reading of books, and how can I preach better, and all, all this. And I, I, you know, I'm not knocking any of those things in themselves, but the essential witness comes quite naturally. If we believe that we will be in God's kingdom, that in a sense we are, you can keep your mouth shut about that. That is good news that has to be spoken. The good news of the kingdom. Uh, as uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend, tend to talk about uh, as. So then, if I have told you earthly things, Jesus says, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
He's <clears throat> saying, well, you know, in a sense, Nicodemus, you're not going to get what I'm saying because you are not born again, because you are still thinking in this literalistic, fleshly, physical way. You think you've seen the miracles and you think you believe, but actually you don't believe. He says you know, really clearly in verse 12, I've told you earthly things and you believe not. But in chapter 2, verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles. And Nicodemus comes, representative of that group, to Jesus and says, no man can do the miracles that you do unless God is with you. And Jesus says to him, you don't believe. It's almost rude, you know, that you sort of think, well, yeah, so why not be positive and say, oh, you believe? Well, that's, that's all good. But you know what? There's another step. But Jesus is, is like really sort of coming right up against him and challenging him, maybe because he knew this is what, as a personality type, this Nicodemus guy needed. Uh, and he's saying, you don't actually believe. That what appears to be belief, what is just a nominal uh, passing interest, a sort of, yeah, nominal is, is the right word, I, I guess. He's saying that's not it. And, you know, this challenges us right to the core. You know, is our faith is our so-called belief really just a passing sort of nominal thing that we, we, we picked up maybe from our culture, from, from our parents or, or whatever, or do we really believe? And he, he goes on to explain, because you know, Jesus wanted to, 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 to save Nicodemus, he goes on to explain what that believing really is all about. But before we, we get to that, uh, we got verse 13, which is a very difficult verse. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, the uh, sort of popular view of that is that, oh, Jesus preexisted as a person, and so he came down from heaven. Um, <clears throat> he, he ascended to heaven, and he came down from heaven, and he's in heaven. Well, that's literalism's last gasp, I would say, if you're going to just take that ascending, descending heaven literally. I mean, clearly the context is talking about heaven in the sense of spiritual things. And you'll notice, of course, that he says um, <clears throat> that first of all the Son of Man ascends to heaven and then he comes down, which is uh, quite different to the uh, the reality that... that uh, Jesus was on earth and then he ascended to heaven. Uh, and it's the Son of Man who does all this. Trinitarian theology breaks down in a big mess here, I, I suggest, because this is not Jesus the God, uh, as they think. God the Son who did this is the Son of Man. So that's, uh, as I say, to me that's literalism's last gasp to, to, to take heaven there and ascending to heaven and descending in a literal sense. Because Jesus is clearly talking, as he says, not about earthly things, but about heavenly things. Not about being born of the flesh, but being born of the spirit. So I think what, what he's saying is that he is in heaven. He is thinking on a totally spiritual way, in a totally spiritual way, <clears throat> because he has ascended to heaven and come down. And that is another illusion to Moses. And in fact, the Jewish writings that were common at the time talk about Moses going up to going up the mountain and then coming down from the mountain with, with God's law, with God's word, uh, in terms of him ascending to heaven and coming down and yet remaining, as it were, in heavenly places, in the sense that he, in the, in the tabernacle, had that regular communion with the angel. You remember his, his face shone as a result of it. I think also Jesus is saying that he alone, as Jesus the Son of God, is the only one who was ultimately, literally, born of the Spirit, because nobody else had a virgin birth apart from Jesus. He was the one who was literally born of the Spirit. And in fact, <clears throat> if you look at those two words, those two Greek words, the one translated born and the other spirit, uh, and you see where else they occur, they're not very common, the occurrence of those two words together, but they occur together in the records of the virgin birth in Matthew and in Luke. In Luke 1.35, that which will be born of you by the Holy Spirit. 
This is talking about Jesus. And the other one, Matthew 1, verse 20, where again, the idea of being conceived or born, it's the same word, of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is used about the virgin birth of Jesus. So, I would suggest that, you know, in Matthew and Mark uh, and Luke, uh, you've, or Matthew and Luke rather, you've got the, if you like, the, the literal uh, description of the, the virgin birth. And we don't get that in John in so many words, but you get it as you do so many things in John's Gospel, you get the same idea, but in more spiritual language. Now, in John 1 verse 13, we're told that we, all those who believe, have been born not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Now, that's the language of the virgin birth, and it's the same language, really, that we're meeting here in John 3, about being born of water and of the spirit, the need to be born of spirit, that that which is born of spirit is spirit. So, the language of the virgin birth is being applied to us. So the only person who ultimately was totally in heaven, totally spiritual, was Jesus. Because he was born of the Spirit and he had that bias, if you like, that, uh, as a result of the fact that God was his literal, his literal father. But what he's saying is that you can all, if you believe in me, you can all, in essence, be reborn of the Spirit, and have, if you like, a virgin birth. Now, where this is significant, I think, is that all of us are faced with temptation, and in our weak moments, I believe all of us have thought, well, okay, Jesus is presented there in the New Testament as my representative, as my example, my inspiration in the hour of temptation, but it was all right for him because his father was God. And he had that bias that I do not have. Now, either the New Testament teaching, particularly in Hebrew, is about the Lord Jesus being uh, our representative, the one who had our nature and who is thereby and therefore our living example in every temptation that we meet. I mean, all that teaching must be given its, its full weight. And that teaching, to me, loses some sort of power if, in fact, we say, yeah, well, Jesus was so different from me that he's not really my example. He, he becomes then like an icon that we come to, to worship, like in Russian Orthodox Church, for example, a beautiful picture that you see from far away. But there's nothing out of that picture that, that can get into you and change your daily life. So, my suggestion is that yeah, sure, Jesus did have this divine bias, this difference to you and me by virtue of his virgin birth, which, which we don't have. But that advantage of bias or whatever word we, we want to use is to some degree compensated for if we too are true believers in him and are born of water and of the Spirit. Now, the birth of the Spirit is a, is a process. We're born again, as we saw in Peter, by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And it, you know, it's this Greek, Greek word for, for sperm. This power of, of life, um, this possibility of life, this, this DNA, if you like, this, this whole new birth, this whole new life, is there in God's Word. In whichever way you want, you want to take God's Word, uh, I mean, the Chronicles genealogies are, are God's Word, but God's Word, however we wish to define it, I mean, the Bible, the Word made flesh and the Lord Jesus, um, the essence of the Gospel, whatever, this is what has the power to, to change us. So then, he goes on, and don't forget, he's in the same context, he's in the same conversation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, why does he start talking about this? Well, you probably know the story there, Numbers 21, that Israel were bitten by fiery serpents, and so they were told to make a fiery serpent, a brass one, and lift it up on a pole, and look at that, and believe, 
and then the the venom that they felt rising up in their in their bloodstream that was going to kill them, that that would lose its power, and that they would not die, but they would live. And Jesus is saying that in the same way, I will be lifted up on a pole. It's clearly talking about the crucifixion, uh, and those who look to me there, and of course believe, will have eternal life. And of course we're like those Jews that. Uh, Israelites rather in the wilderness that that were bitten we've all been bitten by by sin by by the snakes and we have to drag ourselves into a position where we can look to him in faith and we say yes I believe and of course it's been observed that it's a slightly strange symbol that is used for Jesus on the cross that it was a, a snake we may find that a strange use of language that a snake or a model snake could represent Jesus. But then you, you see the appropriacy, I think, of that symbol when we recognize that the Lord Jesus, as it were, killed sin. That snake that was lifted up was, in a sense, a dead snake. Sin was dead in the Lord Jesus because he faced all our temptations but overcame them. The power of sin was dead in him. Now, this word pole that is used in the Old Testament to describe the, the piece of wood that they lifted up the, the snake on, it's also translated ensign. And the idea was that something was lifted up. For example, when the, the tribes of Israel wanted to move forward, they, they moved following their ensign, and they encamped around their ensign. It was like a, a pole with some sort of picture or symbol on it. And, of course, in the, uh, in the analogy, we are also on our wilderness journey. We've been baptized in the, in the Red Sea, as it were. We're walking through the wilderness following this pole, this ensign. What that means in, in practice is that in daily life, the Lord Jesus and his cross, his spirit of dying, is our guide and our inspiration. Time and again, we ask ourselves, how can this decision of mine, this way of life, this attitude to life, uh, be influenced by him there in his time of dying? Is this carrying the cross, what I'm doing in this decision, in this attitude, in this way of speaking, in this position that I have adopted? And so... Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, remember, the whole thing has started off with people saying, yeah, yeah, well, we're impressed with your miracles, Jesus. We, we believe in you. And Jesus is saying, it's not a case of believing that sort of I exist or believing that I'm somehow from God in some sense. It's not a case of looking at miracles and thinking, wow, that was cool. You must be from God. He's saying, no, the real faith is to look at me in my time of dying and believe that I can give you eternal life. That, if you like, is to be paralleled with being born again, being born of water and of the Spirit, seeing him there and saying, yes, I will identify myself with him there by being born of water, that is, by being baptized and by being spiritually reborn. God so loved the world, and the idea is God in this manner loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, that you know, the Bible's most well-known verse is there in the context of Jesus saying that he is the equivalent of the snake lifted up on the pole, on the cross, and that whoever believes on him as he is and was there will have eternal life. And that was all because God gave his only begotten son to die that death. In this, God so loved the world. And so, again, Jesus is saying that it's not a case of seeing a few miracles and being vaguely impressed and considering that, yeah, there's something in all this I some kind of, some sort of believe, he's saying that no, it's about believing in me crucified and all that that stood for and 
you will live forever. And then he, he goes on with some wonderful words of comfort. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He wasn't trying to catch us out, but that the world through him might be saved. So it's so positive when you look at it like that. And in our weakness, we all fear condemnation. We fear failure because that's how we've been socialized. It's, it's how we are in the old life, in the, the birth of flesh. But God is not like that. He is not trying to catch us out. The whole wonderful purpose of him giving his son to die as, as he did was so that we might be saved. God wants to save us. He wants to give us the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And, and so when you think of the huge pain that there was to God, the huge emotional investment, to put it somewhat clinically, that, that God went through in the death of Jesus. And, and you and I, in all our weakness, say, yeah, I believe that, God. Yeah, I believe. I, I, I want to identify with that. Yeah, I'll be baptized into his death. It must touch the heart of God so wonderfully that, wow, it's not been in vain for that little chap down there. In, you know, in all our weakness and all our dysfunction. And he goes on even more positively. He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he's saying that the only people who are going to be condemned are those who condemn themselves. Those who don't want all this wonderful, and that's too mild a word, but you know, this wonderful, awesome is the... Fashionable word at the moment. Uh, this awesome, this wonderfully positive uh, salvation that's been made available. And if a man turns around and says, nah, don't want it. Okay. You're self-condemned, but not by God so much. You said it. Yourself. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now we may think that he's changing a little bit his tack, but no. He says, light has come into the world. Now we're spoilt in this age of electric light, where our concept of light coming into the world is flicking a switch and light comes on and dispels the darkness in, in a second. That's not how most people have experienced light. Light is not electric light. If you wanted a light, you had to light a torch. And by torch, I don't mean something with batteries in it. I, I mean a piece of wood with something flammable on the end of it. That was a light. And that word there, yeah, translated light, is sometimes translated torch, as in, you know, the old style of torch, where, where the, uh, torch in the old sense. You know, a piece of wood with something flammable on the end of it that burns. A wick, if you like. That was light, certainly to the people who heard Jesus speaking. And so he's just spoken about himself as the snake that was lifted up on the pole. And the, the, the thought continues. He now uses another figure and says he's the light, the torch that has come into the world. And he says elsewhere in John that he is the light of the world, the torch of the world. So Again, the idea, a piece of wood, and on the top of it, light, something burning, a fire, a flame. And that's how he presents him, himself on the cross to us. A light, a burning, and, uh, a burning light that's giving warmth, that's giving light. And again, putting meaning into words. This means that... Again, all our understanding of life is to be in the light of, in the context of, him there on the cross. His salvation, his forgiveness of me, his forgiveness of you, his forgiveness of all the people, at least potential forgiveness of all the people with whom you and I come into contact in this world. That is the light, that pure grace that God could give his only begotten Son. God so loved the world. In this manner he loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son. That grace, that endless mercy and desire to save others, to share with them a wonderful plan, that, that is what, that is the light of our lives. And we've said that in the Old Testament, the word translated pole is also translated an ensign. And there is a passage in Isaiah that talks about an ensign, a fire being lit in, in Zion, in Jerusalem, that is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And it's the same wonderful idea. That that ultimately is a reference to the crucified Jesus. That people from all over the Gentile world would come to believe in and live their lives in his light. And so he says that people don't all like that because men love, they prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Because people who do evil hate the light, they don't want to come to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. But he who does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest. Now, that is why when we break bread and drink wine in memory of Jesus, we are to examine ourselves. But it's not so much a command to examine ourselves Quite naturally, us thinking about him there will elicit from us, it will elicit from us quite naturally, self-examination. Whether our deeds, our lives, our works are wrought in God or not. And those who, those who are not living as they should, they don't like all this. They don't want to come to that burning torch or light, as it's translated here, um, of Jesus on the cross. And I have observed a worrying tendency in myself. When I come to read the records of the crucifixion, and I I use the Bible companion uh, reading tables, and that that means I am reading those records of the crucifixion at least eight times a year, and uh, I think many more times. But I I sense this tendency in myself, and I come to that chapter, I think, ah, yeah, the crucifixion. Uh, And... Although it's so gripping and so awful and so wonderful in a sense, um, I, I always want to skim read it, get through it quickly, get to the end, oh, let's get on to the resurrection chapter. Um, oh, yeah, I know how all this goes. Yeah, yeah, I know what's next. Yeah, I know all this. Why? I've asked myself, why would I have that sort of difficulty in engaging with the record of the crucifixion? And I think it's because... It, it's so sort of, it elicits quite naturally introspection, looking in, into ourselves. We can't be there, as it were, in his presence, naked, crucified, covered in blood and spittle, and, and be passive. It's, as I say, it's not so much a command to self-examination, it's what happens when you think seriously about him there. It's why we, we find self-examination difficult, I think, that we don't like to look inside, because we don't like what we might see, what we might have to change. And yet, there's others who, or all of us at times, who, who really would like to, to live a more examined life, to get a grips with ourselves, to get to know ourselves. Who really am I? I well, every human being has struggled with that, I think, at some point. And it's very difficult until we come to reflect upon him and imagine him there. And I don't say it's sort of magic, but something happens. Insofar as we really try to reconstruct in our own minds his death there and him there, we quite naturally see what I should be doing and what I should not be doing. It's why it's standing up there lecturing people, you should do this and you should not be doing that. Well, I I don't say it has no value, but ultimately the powerful, the powerful introspection and the powerful personal challenge to ourselves is in a man or woman personally reflecting upon him there. And that's something that no no preaching by a human being, no form of words, no, no book, no, no sermon, exhortation, call it what we wish. It can do. It has to be done personally. 
just reflecting, maybe as you're lying awake there at night with your eyes like mine, looking at the, the uh, ceiling rose, like the, you know, the, the light socket there on the, on the ceiling, or some moment in your life when you are alone with yourself and you're thinking, uh, that, that's a time to think about him there. You remember when Jesus was a, a little baby, and Simeon takes him in his arms, and he says this child uh, is uh, going to is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and a sword is going to pierce Mary's heart and his soul also, Jesus, uh, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's in Luke 2. That's a wonderful little phrase there. They're very, very perceptive of Simeon to say that. That he perceived that in the piercing of the Son of God, the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. That's why you know, people who came to the crucifixion, who actually saw it in real life, it's, it's written that they smote their breasts and walked away. Smiting the breast. Only other time that's used, it's in, in Luke's record, uh, that he says that they smote their breasts and walked away. Or it could be, he actually uses the word returned. It could mean they returned home. It could also mean they repented. Um, but, but the point is, the only other time it's used is about the, the sinner who smites upon his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So then those people came and who saw the, the actual crucifixion, they repented. They, they beat upon their breasts. Maybe they just walked away. Maybe they repented, but all the same, they beat upon their breasts. This was not like going to the show, watching a crucifixion on a Sunday afternoon or whatever people did Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, circus comes to town kind of thing. No, this time, in the death of that man, there was something special. The centurion says, surely this was a righteous man. There was something there in him that all through the centuries comes through to you and me. As we, as I say, we have to reconstruct in our own minds the, uh, the picture there and, and him there. That this somehow has a grip or can have a grip on human life in practice. And so, let's go back to Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by by night, didn't he? And Jesus is saying, in the middle of the night, to this nervous man who'd come to him by night, he's saying that, look, I'm going to be lifted up on a pole in crucifixion. I am going to be the light of this world. Every time Nicodemus is, is mentioned in John 7 and John 19, it's noted he was the guy, what well, does I say the guy, but you know, he was the one who, who came to Jesus by night. And the story's got a wonderful ending because it ends in John 19 with Jesus crucified and Nicodemus buys this huge amount of, of spices, etc. To, to bury Jesus with. Now, those miserable, and they, they are miserable critics of the Bible, say, I know, it, it couldn't have been so. Uh, if you look over there at John 19.39, um, we were told that Joseph of Arimathea, as it were, comes out publicly and goes to Pilate and begs the body, which is only what a close relative could do. Um, and Nicodemus also comes out publicly. He which at the first came to Jesus by night, uh, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight. And they go and bury Jesus. Now, I, as I said, those miserable Bible critics say... That couldn't have been so, because even the Caesars were buried with less than that. Where did the guy get it from? You know, this was uh, Sabbath. It was, well, the Sabbath was drawing on. This was colossally expensive. He wouldn't have just had the money to go out and buy that. Well, I suggest that we can maybe uh, reconstruct the situation a bit, that he sees Jesus dying, and he who came to Jesus by night, the penny drops and he's right. Okay, I'm coming out in the open. I'm going to be born again. I am going to be born of water and of spirit. I'm going to identify myself with him, not anymore sneaking around at night 
or trying to put a quiet good word in for Jesus like he did in John 7, he somehow would have turned all his possessions, or lots of them, into cash. And this was, you know, just a couple of hours maybe before sunset. Everyone's getting ready to go home for the big holiday. Selling off things really quickly, taking any stupid price for just getting rid of them and running around the markets buying up every bit of myrrh and aloe that's that's on offer any price probably his wife so maybe his kids his grandkids may be saying hey what are you doing you're you're squandering our inheritance but all the same now he the penny had dropped and i'm sure the beating in that man's brain was the simple idea now nothing else matters it, it must have been for Joseph of Arimathea when he said, right, yeah, I'll come out publicly for this man. And whether they quite understood about the resurrection or not, I, I'm not sure. Probably they didn't fully. But uh, the point is, they saw him there as he was, and they responded. They walked out, as it were, across the no-man's land between you know, the, the crowd who sort of uh, believed and, or were touched in their conscience but didn't quite know what to do about it, these people said, no, I will concretely do something. If it costs me my image, if it costs me my status in society, it may cost me persecution, it costs me my possessions, maybe my family thinking I'm crazy, squandering my inheritance, whatever it might be. Now, nothing else matters. He has done this. This is for real. I'm now selling my soul for him. And you and I, in our own ways, in our million different contexts that we each have in different parts of our lives, we are faced with the same cross, with the same Son of God hanging upon it. And we're faced with that same challenge that I can be now born again. I can be born from above. I can be of the Spirit and not of the flesh. And both see God's kingdom and, in a, in a sense, enter into it. Thank you.